Before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that this podcast miniseries is a companion to my new book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. It's available wherever you buy books. And now, on to the show. Previously on The Queen, Linda Taylor went on trial for welfare fraud in 1977. Her lawyers knew that both the facts of her case and public sentiment were working against her. She was being painted as this big-time crook, indicative of all black females on welfare. Meanwhile, Ronald Reagan kept touting Taylor's crimes. Railing against welfare fraud helped him connect with voters. It's a way of channeling anxiety and frustration and rage around racial hierarchy without explicitly talking about race. Linda Taylor was ultimately convicted of fraud and perjury. When she went to prison, the press lost interest in her. Nobody bothered to figure out where she'd come from or what she'd been through. When I started researching Linda Taylor, I knew she'd been accused of doing outrageous things, and that was pretty much all I knew. Taylor was an important historical figure, the model for the welfare queen stereotype. I wanted to give a full accounting of her life, one that filled in the gaps in the historical record. And there were a lot of gaps. My reporting suggested that I could find some important clues about Taylor's early life in a court file in Chicago. That file contained the records from a 1964 case concerning the estate of Lawrence Wakefield. You'll learn more about Wakefield in a few minutes. First, I want to tell you how I got that file. Court cases are usually public records. To get the documents you want, you typically just ask a clerk and pay some copy fees. But for some unknown reason, this case was sealed. In 2015, I hired some lawyers to try to get the case unsealed. They soon told me there was another, more fundamental problem. The probate court couldn't find the file. After a couple of months of silence, I got an email. It said the file was locked in a vault so old that no one in the clerk's office knew the combination to open it. At this point, I thought the clerks were making a bogus excuse so they didn't have to dig for a 50-year-old case. But that's not what was going on. These clerks weren't lazy. They were just as eager to find the file as I was. The next message I got was that they had tried, unsuccessfully, to blast open the vault. The next thing I heard after that was that they'd gotten a safecracker to drill holes in the vault. And the next thing after that was, miracle of miracles, they'd managed to pry open the vault. Then they looked inside, and the file wasn't there. Two months later, I got another email. The subject line was found with an exclamation point. The case file had been located on a regular shelf, in regular storage. It had gone missing because someone had mislabeled it. After a couple of legal maneuvers and a flight to Chicago, I found myself sitting in an office, looking at hundreds of pages of records, testimony about who Linda Taylor was before she became known as the welfare queen, how she'd been born on a cold and rainy day in 1926, how she'd been denied an education, how her family had effectively disowned her because of the circumstances of her birth. Flipping through all those pages, I felt, for the first time, that I was getting to know Linda Taylor and starting to understand the contours of her life. 
I recognized that Taylor was a scammer, and that she'd victimized a huge number of people. But what I found in that court file also made me feel sad for her and angry on her behalf. This is The Queen, a show about the woman behind the welfare queen myth. I'm Josh Levine. Episode 3, Constance. Lawrence Wakefield was having a heart attack. He was lying in a twin bed, fully dressed, and grabbing his chest. He tried to choke out a message, but all he could do was grunt in pain. When the Chicago police showed up at Wakefield's Southside home on February 18, 1964, they found a dying man an old, shabby furniture. As they waited for an ambulance, one of the officers noticed a pile of stuff on the dining room table, $50 in silver coins some coin wrappers, and tape from an adding machine, telltale signs of an illegal gambling operation. When Wakefield went to the hospital, everyone cleared out of the house. The next day, a pair of detectives talked their way back in and started snooping around. Inside a bedroom, they found cash piled on the floor and pouring out of bank bags, jammed inside the closet and in between the cushions of the couch. The cops believed Wakefield had acquired all those riches unlawfully, so they confiscated everything. It took them almost 20 hours to count the money. The final tally was $763,223.30. That would be more than $6 million today. As the police had suspected, Wakefield had made his fortune by taking bets. His game was known as policy. It was a kind of local lottery, and it played a major role in the social and cultural life of the South Side. Here's Devarian Baldwin. He's the author of the book Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, the Great Migration, and Black Urban Life. So by the 1930s, uh, there were reportedly almost 500 policy stations dotted all over um, the primarily black neighborhood of Bronzeville. Very small businesses from barber and beauty shops to pool halls and corner stores, they supplemented their income by serving as formal fronts for policy stations. Policy gambling allowed black Chicagoans to build their own economy at a time when they were systematically excluded from white-controlled financial markets. For much of the 20th century, hundreds of thousands of people played policy every day, hoping to defy the odds and see their lucky numbers get drawn. One thing that made policy attractive is that you could bet as little as a penny. You could bet a nickel. You could bet a dime. All those pennies, nickels, and dimes added up. Policy provided a huge number of jobs for black men and women. There were clerks, runners, doormen, and numerologists who helped people pick which digits to play. But most of the money that policy generated went to the people running the games, so-called policy barons or policy kings and queens. These men and women underwrote the arts in black Chicago, and they funded charitable causes. They also weren't shy about flaunting their wealth. Everyone on the South Side knew who was getting rich from policy. Yeah, so people would see these individuals driving their Rolls Royces or their their lady friends with mink coats and would see them at the nightclubs. Those Rolls Royces and mink coats would vanish after World War II, when the Italian mafia violently seized control of Chicago's policy racket. The last big-time black policy baron, a man named Teddy Rowe, was gunned down in the street in 1952. By the uh, 
the late 50s and the 60s, the only way to survive in the face of white gangsters control and white political attention was to be nimble and to maintain an underground status and to um, be a policy baron by not appearing to be a policy baron. Lawrence Wakefield evaded the Italian mob by running his operation in secret. Wakefield also made sure he didn't look like a policy baron, with his old clothes, old car, and ramshackle house. He didn't seem like the type to have $760,000 lying around in a back bedroom. Wakefield died a few nights after he started having chest pains. He never knew that the police had found his secret stash. The tycoon's treasure vault made big news in Chicago and throughout the country. For certain people, Wakefield's stockpile was more than an interesting news item. It was an opportunity. The media reports all said that Lawrence Wakefield had no known blood relatives. In short order, more than a dozen people came forward to say they were the rightful heirs to his fortune. One of them was Linda Taylor. In 1964, Linda Taylor was 38 years old. At the time of Lawrence Wakefield's death, she wasn't a public figure. That changed when she told the press and the Cook County Probate Court that she was Wakefield's daughter. She said her name was Constance Wakefield. Constance didn't expect that anyone would just take her at her word. And so she provided paperwork, a birth certificate that listed Wakefield as her father, plus a pair of wills that indicated that he'd left her nearly everything. The fight over the Wakefield estate got very contentious very quickly. Constance's main rival for the money was a 70-year-old woman named Rose Kennedy. Kennedy, who was white, said that she was Wakefield's common-law wife. She also claimed that a portion of Wakefield's money was actually hers. She said she'd earned it a half-century earlier, when she was a prostitute in Canada. Rose Kennedy definitely knew Lawrence Wakefield. She had been the one to call the police when Wakefield had a heart attack. She'd also been inside that ramshackle house when the Chicago police found all the money. Kennedy was certain that Wakefield didn't have a daughter. If she could prove that, there was a good chance she'd keep the cash to herself. She had already hired a team of lawyers to help her win control of the estate. One of them, Norris Bishton, was tasked with investigating Constance. Just from looking at her and talking to her, uh, I felt that she was a total fraud. Bishton sat across from Constance Wakefield during multiple depositions. Asking her questions was a frustrating experience. Her stories constantly changed, and she didn't have any ability to remember which lie she had just told a while back. I mean, nothing nothing seemed straightforward about her. Bishton didn't think Constance was lying about everything. He believed that she was being honest about growing up in Arkansas and Tennessee. And so that's where Bishton started his sleuthing. I would call county clerks to get somebody in the office and ask uh, questions. And uh, it's when I first learned how powerful one sentence is uh, that you, when you would get somebody on the phone and you would say, I wonder if you could please help me. Uh, I really need help. Bishton would find that help in the form of a surprise witness, a figure from Constance Wakefield's past who had an agenda of his own. Norris Bishton is 82 now. 
It's been 55 years since he worked on the Wakefield case. I've had tried many, many cases, had strange things happen during the cases over my career. But those, those few days in that cramped courtroom in the old courthouse in Chicago, just it sticks in my mind. That was really bizarre. There was no jury in that cramped courtroom. The case would be decided by a judge. On the morning of November 9, 1964, Constance Wakefield took the stand and promised that judge she'd tell nothing but the truth. She declared that she'd been born on Christmas Day, 1934, and that her parents were Lawrence Wakefield and Edith Jarvis. Then the cross-examination started, and a regular probate case became an extraordinary spectacle. Norris Bishton was working with a colleague named Jack Berry, and Barry was about to lead Constance Wakefield into a trap. He asked Constance a series of very specific questions. Did she know of the town of Arab, Alabama? Was her mother's name Lydia? Did she know who Hubert Mooney was? She answered no every time. Barry then mentioned Hubert Mooney again, asking Constance if she'd known him for a long time. She didn't like that. I told you I don't know him, she snapped. I don't know anything about him, anything about his work or what he does. Barry was unfazed. He turned to Bishton and said, Get Hubert Mooney, please. When uh, uh, we called uh, Hubert Mooney, uh, she looked thunderstruck, and I went out to the small room and brought in Hubert. She was really uh, visibly shaken by his presence. Constance Wakefield's attorney was a man named Leon Wexler. Wexler was surprised by this new witness. He had never heard of Hubert Mooney. Mooney was a short, slender, white man with a receding hairline. Wexler thought he looked a lot like Constance. Same physical build, same uh, weight structure, same appearance. So there was no question in my mind that they were related. Hubert Mooney had come to Chicago all the way from Texas. He said that the woman calling herself Constance Wakefield was really named Martha Louise White. He said Martha's father was a man who lived in Alabama, not the policy king Lawrence Wakefield. And he said Martha's mother was Lydia Mooney. Lydia was Hubert Mooney's sister. If Hubert was telling the truth, that would be the end of the road for the self-proclaimed Constance Wakefield. But Constance's lawyers had a surprise of their own. A few days later, they called Lydia Mooney to the stand. She'd come to Chicago from Arkansas to say that Constance Wakefield was not her biological daughter. Lydia told a very odd story about how Constance had come into her life. She testified that the girl had been left on her doorstep as an infant. Lydia claimed the three-month-old baby had a tag on her arm that said Connie Wakefield. Lydia, who was white, said she raised Connie for six years, at which point the girl was taken away by, quote, colored people. According to Lydia, Lawrence Wakefield later picked Connie up and drove her away for good. This was, to put it mildly, a highly implausible story, and one that strengthened Constance Wakefield's claim to a vast fortune. Norris Bishton found it impossible to believe, but he had to try and disprove it. To do so, Bishton and Lydia's brother, Hubert Mooney, embarked on a crazy after-hours mission. I don't know how I did this, but 
we went from the courtroom to the airport, uh, got on a plane, flew down to Memphis, rented a car, drove into the hills of Tennessee. They were going to see a woman named Sarah Jane Mooney. Sarah Jane was Hubert and Lydia's mother and the grandmother of the woman who claimed to be Constance Wakefield. She lived in a house with no electricity. And we got there, it's dark. And uh, I remember Hubert saying to me, just stay here in the car. He says, if you approach a house like this, the house was not, a, you know, it was sort of by itself. If they don't know who you are, you could get yourself shot. Norris Bishton and Hubert Mooney managed to make it inside unscathed. Sarah Jane was in her 80s, and she was rail thin. She sat in a rocking chair as her son told her about what was happening in Chicago. Hubert told his mother that it was a disgrace to their family. Sarah Jane had never been on an airplane before, but after listening to what Hubert had to say, she agreed to go up north and testify. Uh, We got back in the car, muddy roads, got to the airport, got got a plane, flew back to Chicago, uh, got a cab, and went straight to the courthouse. Sarah Jane Mooney told the judge that she was a midwife, and that she delivered her daughter Lydia's baby. That baby, her granddaughter, was named Martha. Sarah Jane said Martha was in the courtroom. She was calling herself Constance Wakefield. That testimony happened on a Friday. The following Monday, November 16, 1964, Constance Wakefield's airship petition was denied. Rose Kennedy, Lawrence Wakefield's common-law wife, was awarded the bulk of the estate. That was the end of the Wakefield probate case. But reading through the transcript, I found a different, grimmer story. On the surface, the battle being fought in that Chicago courtroom was about a huge pile of money. But the Wakefield case was also about race and a family secret. When Norris Bishton went to Tennessee, he'd heard Linda Taylor's white relatives talk about how this case in Chicago was a disgrace. That disgrace had nothing to do with Taylor lying about being Constance Wakefield. It had to do with the color of her skin. I certainly knew, based upon these members of the family talking about this horrible thing that they they considered a a shame in the family that the, the real father, Connie's real father, was black. In private, Taylor's uncle Hubert and her grandmother Sarah Jane acknowledged that Taylor was mixed race. But in court, they both insisted that her father wasn't a, quote, Negro. Hubert testified that the man was a Portuguese or something. And he said that there wasn't any, quote, colored blood in the Mooney family's ancestral home of Coleman County, Alabama. When Hubert Mooney made that statement about colored blood, Constance Wakefield's attorney, Leon Wexler, instructed her to stand up. Wexler then asked Hubert Mooney if he still stood by the statement that there has never been a Negro living in Coleman County. Hubert said that was correct. If he saw his niece standing up, who was obviously a black lady, uh, and said um, he didn't see this, he obviously had a vision problem. Or he was a liar. Or he was a liar, one or the other. Hubert Mooney hadn't gone to Chicago because he cared about the truth. He'd gone to make sure a family secret stayed buried. Linda Taylor was rejected by her family because of her race. 
That's what I learned from this unsealed court file. I also learned that she'd been born in January 1926 in Gold Dust, Tennessee, a tiny town on the banks of the Mississippi. That her aunt didn't remember her ever going to school, even though her half-sister, who had two white parents, did. I learned that Taylor fought with her stepfather all the time, that she became a nomad around the age of 12, that as a teenager she went to the West Coast, and that she was then arrested for prostitution. The racism and deprivation that Linda Taylor faced doesn't excuse her criminal behavior, and it doesn't explain why she became a criminal. At the same time, her family's cruelty must have affected her in profound ways. That's what Skip Gant, her lawyer when she later went on trial for welfare fraud, was referring to in episode two, when he suggested that her brain had been altered by childhood trauma. The Wakefield case file didn't reveal all of Taylor's secrets. While Taylor definitely wasn't Lawrence Wakefield's daughter, I do think it's possible that she knew the policy king and perhaps worked for him. I would have loved to learn more about Taylor's connection to policy on the south side of Chicago, how she may have found a home in this black institution that was ultimately destroyed by white gangsters. What I do know is that after the Wakefield airship battle ended, Taylor moved from an all-white part of Chicago to a south side neighborhood that was 99% black. A decade later, when she was known as the welfare queen, she'd say on camera that compared to some of you white people, I think I'd done pretty damn good to be black. Throughout her life, Taylor latched onto other people's families. In the fourth and final episode of The Queen, you'll meet two women who Taylor became close to, one in the 1950s and one in the 1970s. In one case, Taylor's arrival would be seen as a blessing. In the other, it was a tragedy. She provided for us. She always seemed to have had means. She wasn't flamboyant, but it seemed that she was resourceful where she could get it if it needed to be gotten. I think she took advantage of people. I can understand, you know, him saying that she was an evil woman. This episode of The Queen was written by me, Josh Levine, and produced by Emma Morgenstern. Editorial direction from Lowen Liu and Gabriel Roth. Merritt Jacob mixed this episode and wrote some of the music in the series. You can subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. It would also be great if you could rate and review the show. It helps other people find it. You can email us at thequeen@slate.com. This podcast series is a companion to my book, which is called The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. It's on sale wherever you buy books. Special thanks to June Thomas, Melissa Kaplan, Danielle Hewitt, Asha Saluja, Vicki Gann, TJ Raphael, Lisa Larson-Walker, Katie Rayford, Jeff Friedrich, Jessica Seidman, Leonard Roberge, Aliyah Hannah-Habib, Vanessa Mobley, Alyssa Persons, Sabrina Callahan, Pamela Brown, and the team at Little Brown and Hachette Book Group U.S. Thanks for listening. <laughs>